Between 1881 and 1914, over 10 million people crossed the Atlantic from Europe to America, the largest migration of people from one continent to another in human history. Those are the words of Stephen Ujifusa from his introduction to his book, The Last Ships from Hamburg. 2.5 million of these immigrants to America were Jews. A significant percentage came from Russia. Mr. Ujifusa focuses mostly on three men to tell the story. Jacob Schiff of Kuhn Loeb and Company, Albert Ballin, Managing Director of the Hamburg America Shipping Company, and J.P. Morgan, the mastermind of the International Mercantile Marine Trust. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Book Notes Plus, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Stephen Ujifusa, tell us the story of how you decided to do this book, which you... Write about in your acknowledgments. Well, The Last Ships from Hamburg is kind of a coming home for me as an historian. When I was around six years old, uh, my grandmother told me the story of the Titanic, and that got me interested not just in shipping, but also in history. And it comes full circle also because my grandmother was the youngest of eight children of Russian Jewish immigrants of Isaac and Anna Schlefstein, who came over to America around 1893 or so. My grandmother was born in 1916. And I remember as a child asking my grandmother, did your parents ever talk about the old world? And she said, no, they didn't. Her father uh, saw America as a fresh start. He operated, I think, probably started with a push cart in the Lower East Side and eventually became a butter and egg salesman, did pretty well for himself. And he saw America by the 1920s when my grandma was growing up as this marvelous place. And he would always hang the American flag in front of their house every 4th of July. And after writing my previous two books, the first about the SS United States, uh, the Ocean Liner built in 1952 and on clipper ships, I decided to go back to my own roots and look at Jewish immigration. 
And as the historian Dan Jurgen told me, he said, this story that I wrote about is the sequel to The Fiddler on the Roof, where at the end of the musical, uh, Tevye and his family are expelled from the village of Antevka and they have to go to America. And the scene ends where everyone's leaving Antevka singing about how much they love it, how much they hate it, how I'll be a stranger in a strange new place. And that's the story of the last ship of Hamburg. How did 2.5 million Jews between 1881 and 1914 come to this country from the Russian Empire and from other parts of Eastern Europe? I was specifically asking about that the two ladies sitting next to you when uh, at, at uh, in, in Philadelphia, 43rd and Baltimore Avenue that you write about, and your wife looked at you after the conversation was over and said, that, that's a book. Explain that story. Yes, yeah, so my wife has just been a wonderful inspiration to me uh, as a historian. And back in 2019, my wife and I are having pizza at the Clarkville Pizza Place at 43rd and Baltimore. And sitting next to us are two professors from Swarthmore. And one of them, who's a German professor, was from Hamburg. And I said, oh, Hamburg, that's the hometown of Albert Ballin, who owned the, who was the managing director of the Hamburg America line. And I had known about Albert Ballin uh, for a long time, about his role as a shipping genius. And she said, oh, we love Albert Ballin in Hamburg. And we're talking for a while. And then after we get up and leave, my wife turns to me and says, that should be your next book. And that's that's how I began delving into Albert Ballin, who was a German-Jewish shipping executive who grew up in a very poor family in Hamburg. He knew anti-Semitism and poverty from a very young age. But by the 1890s, he had risen to become the head of one of Germany's largest companies, the Hamburg America Line. And he is arguably responsible for bringing over more immigrants to this country than any other individual, and he is not so well known here. His reputation in Germany is being resurrected, but that's what really uh, propelled me to write this book, was focusing on Albert Ballin. My agent thought, well, people have written about Jacob Schiff, the investment banker in America. They've written about J.P. Morgan a lot, but this Albert Ballin guy sounds fascinating. So in the book you talk about on these ships, first class, second class, third class, and steerage, if you came over, as you suggest, in those days, you were Jewish and you ended up in steerage, what did it cost you? Is there any way to equate it to today? And what did steerage look like on one of these ships? Well, on a big German liner of, say, 1905, uh, a typical ship would carry maybe 500 in first class, 300 in second, and one to 2,000 in steerage. And third class was kind of an upgraded version of steerage where people had private cabins if you paid a little bit more for your family. But steerage on these big liners were these big open compartments in the very bottom of these big liners where you'd have bunks stacked two or three high, you'd have very little privacy, you'd be in the front of the ship where the most motion was, or you'd be in the back of the ship where the engines were most felt. And you'd pay the equivalent, well, in American dollars, you'd pay 30 or $40 per person. Uh, adjusted for inflation, that's probably around one to $2,000 per person. So it's not a cheap voyage. And in order to get your family from the Russian Pale of Settlement in the southern part of the empire across the German border, then take a train to Hamburg or Bremen, all told a family would have to pay maybe around $8,000, which for a 
poor Jewish family making barely making a living as tradesmen in the Russian Empire, that was a tremendous amount of money. They'd often have to sell everything they'd owned to make this trip. So it was, especially for families, a very scary voyage. These people had never seen flush toilets before, had never seen electric lights before on these ships, and they'd never been to sea before. And as one immigrant wrote about traveling in steerage, you could see a lot of water, but you could never see the sky uh, from the portholes. And there was a maze of barriers stopping the three classes on board these ships from interacting with each other. And one thing Albert Ballon did do on his ships uh, for the Hamburg America Line starting in the early 1900s was uh, serving kosher food for passengers, for Jewish passengers, but often on the big German ships, steerage and steerage and third class, Jewish passengers were separated from the other passengers because there was actually a fear of a pogrom breaking out on board. There was, the tensions were that high. How much money did Albert Ballon make off of steerage passengers? Well, personally, according to a uh, a yearbook that I found in German, and sorry, in Austria in 1912, uh, he was listed among 500 or so millionaires in the German Empire at the time. And he was worth about 5 million marks with an annual salary of uh, probably, I, I think it was estimated 400,000 or 500,000 marks. So that made him a very wealthy man. And this is someone who grew up very poor. And although he was managing director of the company, basically the equivalent of CEO, he had no real ownership stake in the company. He was a hired man. So he could be fired at any minute, but he was very driven, very aggressive. Uh, he was often accused by the German Jewish population at the time of being an exploiter of his own people. Uh, he, he, he said that is not true. He basically said, I am running a business and this is a profitable business for all these people trying to get out. And I have set up this system. And so he became quite a wealthy man off of this. He built a grand house in Hamburg where he entertained the Kaiser quite frequently during the Lower El Brigada. And he and the Kaiser had a very complicated relationship, to say the least. But he always felt, no matter how high he rose in German society, that he never hid the fact he was Jewish. Uh, he always felt whenever he went to Berlin to do business with the German government, that there were anti-Semites sitting across the table from him. He married a Christian woman. He raised their adopted daughter, Lutheran, but he refused to convert to Christianity for, uh, for as he said, the, to dishonor the memory of my father. But he was also apparently offered the opportunity to become Chancellor of Germany in 1909. And he said no for that same reason. I cannot convert to Christianity. How much of an anti-Semite was the Kaiser uh, Wilhelm II? Kaiser Wilhelm II had a very complicated relationship with the Jews. On one hand, he assembled a roundtable of prominent Jewish business people to come to Berlin occasionally to discuss Jewish affairs. And at the same time, though, he, his crowd, the Prussian aristocracy who had outsized power in the German Empire were quite anti-Semitic. And among most notably his own wife, Augusta Victoria, who couldn't stand the sight of Albert Ballon and people like him. Uh, they felt that these Jewish business people on the make were a threat to uh, the Prussian gentry who derived their wealth from land, not from industry, not from commerce. 
So Wilhelm would slip into anti-Semitic uh, banter with people of his class. And Albert Ballin never liked, never felt at home among the Prussian governing class who had outsized power in the military and in the foreign office. Uh, for a minute, the numbers game. What I found online is there are 15.7 million people in the world. That's all that claim to be Jewish. 7.2 million of them live in Israel. 6.3 of them live in the United States. We did a documentary in Germany in about 1990, right after the wall came down. And I asked the fellow who was the head of the Jewish group in Germany at the time, how many Jews are there in Germany? He said 30,000. And I just looked it up, and there are now supposedly about 118,000. Question to you is why would a German Jew live in Germany today, given what we know about the past? Well, that's a very good question. I think Germany has learned its lessons uh, regarding uh, its, its, its horrific past with the Holocaust. And compared to, say, the former Soviet Union, uh, it was, it's a much more viable alternative because the Soviet Union never stopped persecuting the Jews. I mean, there was a brief period after the Russian Revolution of 1917 where Lenin said anti-Semitism is over and anti-Semitism had been state policy under the czars, especially during the 1880s, 1890s. And then when Stalin took over, he resumed persecution of, the, of Russia's Jews. And post-World War II, and especially starting after the 1960s and 1970s when Jews were allowed to leave the Soviet Union, Germany actually became a much more, seemed like a more viable place, especially given that Germany has very strict laws that punish anti-Semitic rhetoric and uh, anti-Semitic symbols. So, you know, no place in the world is perfect, but, uh, you know, Germany in 1914 had over 500,000 Jews, or about 1% of the population. And after the war, um, those that didn't leave for America or for other European countries or for, and most of those who left for European countries ended up being caught by the Nazis anyway, uh, most of them perished. Those, the 200,000 that remained perished in the Holocaust. But I think that's the reason why there's a decent sized Jewish population back in Germany today is these, these laws that, that forbid this sort of rhetoric. Your last name is you. J-I-F-U-S-A. Where is that name from? Where, is it, where did it originate? Well, my father is Japanese-American. Uh, his ancestry, he came, his family came to this country over 1900, and I have a Jewish mother. And so I was born in 1979, and I was a relatively early <laughs> uh, instance of, this, of, of interracial marriage. It's now become so common in the United States. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that's that's the origins of, of my family. So I was brought up with uh, both cultures, and uh, yeah, I've always been interested in family history on both sides. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chappaqua, New York, which is a suburb of New York City, just out, about forty minutes north of the city. When did you first start getting interested in history? Up uh, from a very young age, it started with my grandmother and my mother's family, especially was. Uh, very into books. I have a number of academics in my family. Uh, I did not ultimately get a PhD. I have a master's. But uh, and my father was in the publishing industry for a long time. And 
he, from a young age, encouraged my interest in writing, as my brother Andrew. So I was very fortunate in that regard. There were books all over the house. History was discussed around the dinner table. And my grandparents, my grandmother especially, but both of them, my step-grandfather as well, uh, music and culture were very much part of our, our upbringing. My grandmother was a docent at the New York Public Library for years. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have that encouragement in my family. What was the hardest part of doing this book? Ha! Huh. I thought when I started this book that the hardest part of writing this book would be not speaking German, Russian, or Yiddish. And this was in April of 2019 when I got the book contract. So I went to Germany with my family in 2019. We had one son at the time. And I went through, I was miraculously granted access to the Hamburg America Line archives and to the Warburg family archives. Albert Ballin was very close friends with the prominent Warburg family, uh, which was involved in banking both in the United States and in Germany. And so I hired a translator to help me uh, go through the documents, lots and lots of them. I was very fortunate to have that and came back with lots of digital images of documents, began to get them translated. So I'm like, okay, this is not so bad. And then in March, 2020, the world shut down. And I never would imagine that writing this book during COVID lockdowns in the city of Philadelphia with, and we had a second son born in May, 2020, trying to balance all that. That was the biggest challenge, was trying to keep myself in this historical headspace between 1880 and 1920, uh, while trying to do, deal with a changing uh, landscape around us where we were stuck in our house. But I felt I had to get done. I had to get done. I had to tell the story. I, I found some uh, information that you published on page 32. I've asked many people over the years, why is it with so few Jews in the world, there's so much hatred? And um, you, you, you don't define it, but you, you put this in, you, and I'm going to read a bit of it so you can tell me, one, why did you put it in? And number two, where does this all come from? It's, you say Jacob Schiff had no qualms taking on Henry Codman Potter, the Episcopal Bishop of New York, and a religious pillar of the city's social elite. On January the 11th, 1898, Potter relayed in a letter to Jacob Schiff the sentiment that many in the American Protestant elite felt that Jews might have brought persecution upon themselves. Gonna read the rest of it here, uh, and I'll get right back to you. This is in quotes from the bishop. Of course, there are liars, thieves, and swindlers everywhere, the bishop wrote to Schiff. But the contention made among the people whom I again and again approached on the subject is that the hostility to the Hebrew is because in ordinary business and personal transactions, he is tricky and untrustworthy, and unless held by a written agreement, is sure to evade it and overreach the person with whom he is dealing. Why did you decide to put that in here? Well, it showed the level of anti-Semitism was developing in Gilded Age America. And this was uh, a feeling that uh, you know, Jacob Schiff uh, was, uh, was very heavily involved in giving tremendous amounts of his fortune. He gave a huge amount of his fortune away to Jewish charities. Uh, he was arguably the richest Jew in America at the time. He was an investment banker to the Pennsylvania Railroad and to the Rockefellers. I think this feeling came from a sense of competition. 
between the Jew German Jewish bankers who were rising in 1880s and the Protestant bankers. I think there was a lot of feeling of competition. And let's be real, a lot of the WASP establishment in the 1880s, 1890s was engaging in some pretty shady dealings itself in terms of <laughs> manipulation of stocks and railroads. So I think there was this tremendous feeling of competition. Uh, Jacob Schiff and J.P. Morgan, who were business rivals, they did deals together occasionally. But J.P. Morgan, who was uh, pretty anti-Semitic, although he kept it close to his vest, uh, really felt threatened by people like Jacob Schiff. Uh, and I think that it was, I think it was this, this sense of competition of a lot of these more established families looking in the rearview mirror and sort of saying, oh, our families never did anything like that to get their fortunes. And here's the newer group that's arriving from Germany, mostly, and especially in the banking community and Wall Street Jews. We've never engaged in those, those sorts of uh, uh, tactics. The three principles that you talk about in your book, uh, and we've talked about, you've mentioned all three of them. I'd like to have you describe them personally. Uh, start with Albert Ballin. What was he like? How tall was he? Uh, where did he live most of his life? Uh, what kind of a person was he on a one-on-one -on -one basis? It's funny. Uh, the, out of the three people I'm writing about, uh, two of them were very, very short, and one of them was very large, only <laughs> more probably bigger around than he was tall. That was J.P. Morgan. Uh, J Albert Ballin was a very slight man. He was only just over five feet tall. And people said about him, he was, they said he was both kind of an ugly man, but also a very beguiling person. He had uh, this wonderful melodic speaking voice. He spoke German and English fluently. He spent a lot of time in England as a shipping executive. And he was extraordinarily cultured, very well read. He had to drop out of school at 17 to uh, fend for himself after his father died. He took over his father's failing ticket immigrant agency in Hamburg and eventually got bought out by Hamburg America and then rose to the top. But he loved entertaining. He like a lot of self-made uh, men, uh, especially in Wilhelmine, Germany. He loved the good life. He was extremely affectionate towards his wife and his adopted daughter, Ermgard. He built a beautiful house in Hamburg, which still exists, which is now run owned by UNESCO, where he entertained members of the German elite. He helped stage manage the Lower Elbe Regatta. But when negotiating in business, he was really, really, really tough. He was hated by the maritime unions as uh, he was seen as the capitalist oppressor, uh, hated by the, the left wing as well as the anti-Semitic right wing in Germany. But his best friend was the banker Max Vorberg, who ran uh, M.M. Vorberg and Company, one of the most powerful investment banks in Germany and a, a fellow Jew. And the Vorbergs were related by marriage to the ships. And Max Vorberg just said there was something magical about this man. He knew how to be a master diplomat. He had these tremendous speaking eyes, as another journalist said. And I think he really, he deeply believed in Germany as a, what he hoped would be a force for peace and good. He also desperately hoped that, I think, World War I really disillusioned him. But he, I think he believed that Germany was a good place for the Jews if certain forces were kept in check. Uh, Jacob Schiff, also just over five feet tall, he 
was born in 1847 in Frankfurt. His family lived next door to the Rothschilds. They did business together. He grew up in basically the Frankfurt ghetto. He immigrated to America as a teenager uh, to New York with $500 and a package of kosher meat from his father that he hoped would last the crossing. And by the 1870s, Jacob Schiff is working at the investment bank of Kuhn Loeb and Company. He marries the uh, lead partner, Solomon Loeb's daughter, Teresa, very smart move. And he convinces his father-in-law, Solomon Loeb, to become, to transition into banking for these railroads, the startups of their day. And by the 1890s, Jacob Schiff is close advisor to uh, Union Pacific's head, uh, Edward Harriman, to William Avery Rockefeller, to uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad. So he rises to the very top of the financial stratosphere of America. And also, a very he was very religious. He never uh, felt the need to assimilate. In fact, he, he wrote it into his will that his children and grandchildren should not marry outside of the faith. Uh, and he felt that his job as sort of uncrowned leader of the American Jewish community was to make America safe for the Jews of the world. He felt deeply believed in the Constitution and in the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment passed after the Civil War that protected people of all races, you know, at least in law, uh, uh, against discrimination and religious persecution. And he set up a whole network of charities, including the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Henry Street Settlement, uh, Montefiore Hospital, to basically allow Jews who came to this country to get a head start. He did micro-investing to small business people. But Russian Jews who came here, they appreciated his and his crowd's charity, but they felt also, the flip side was that they felt the German Jews were very haughty, very authoritarian, they talked down to them, and and many of the, especially the left-wing Jews, um, felt that they were bourgeois, they were capitalists. So there was that resentment there. You, you and, point out in your book that Jacob Schiff lived on the Upper East Side or West Side North in in uh, Manhattan, but the Russian Jews that came over in those years lived down in the tenements. Explain that. And he did visit them. And why did he visit them? How did he visit them? Yeah, Jacob Schiff lived uh, most of his life in New York on the Upper East Side uh, on Fifth Avenue. And he walked to his office on at 52 William Street every day. But whenever he visited the Lower East Side, and he made a point of doing it, he never took a carriage. Whenever he visited any of these organizations that he worked with, he would walk there on foot, saying it is inappropriate for a person of my station to sort of show off. He always dressed very elegantly, but very plainly. And uh, was a, he had no need to sort of show off his status materially to these people. He felt that it was it was just not appropriate. He actually gave his uh, daughter and son-in-law, uh, Felix and Frieda Warburg, a very tough time when they built a very grand neo-Gothic mansion on Upper Fifth Avenue, not too far from his house, uh, saying it was too show-offy and too goyish. It would make the, the Gentiles jealous. He had this sort of sense of like, you know, he loved having his money, but he felt money was to be given away. He chided many people for what he felt were was, were extravagances, JP, including his family. J.P. Morgan, you point out in the book that he had uh, he didn't like to have his picture taken 
tell us more about him, what he looked like, and and uh, how important was he to this whole story? Well, J.P. Morgan tried to do what he did for railroads to the Atlantic shipping business. In 1901, he formed a partnership with a Philadelphia shipping tycoon named Clement Griscom to basically buy up every single line on the North Atlantic. And he almost succeeded. And he his biggest purchase was the White Star Line, which was a British line in 1902 for $32 million cash. But he failed to buy the German lines, which had the biggest revenue stream of from immigration. Albert Ballin used the Kaiser to basically stop the deal. And Albert Ballin was probably one of the few people to actually stop J.P. Morgan from getting his way. Uh, J.P. Morgan, who never hired Jews at any of his company, did offer Albert Ballin a million dollars a year to run the International Mercantile Marine and to get him, basically poach him from the Hamburg America line. And Albert Ballin said, absolutely not. My loyalty is with the company I built. My loyalty is to my fatherland. Absolutely not. Ballin probably knew that the International Mercantile Marine would be a failure. It was arguably Morgan's only failure. But... Morgan was, unlike Schiff, he was very much uh, someone who loved the fine things in life, loved food, loved uh, collecting vast amounts of art. He had this terrible condition on his nose that caused it to sprout all sorts of sort of wart-like things. It made it very large and very red. And he was very self-conscious of this. And whatever pictures were taken of him uh, by the 1890s, it looked pretty pretty ghastly. Uh, he would make sure they were doctored. Once the, uh, a photographer did take a picture of him emerging from his townhouse, uh, showing his nose in all its full glory, and Morgan attacks the photographer. There's a picture that you can find online showing Morgan wielding his cane, uh, being taken away by his handlers. He wanted to beat up this photographer. Uh, he was someone who loved, he was not someone who was left a huge written record. He was very much a math guy, very much an introvert. But he loved creating order out of chaos. And he saw the shipping world as he wanted to own it. So it was he was he was a force to be reckoned with. And he fought Jacob Schiff um to a draw on one famous railroad attempted takeover in 1902. And JP Morgan grudgingly admitted that JP Morgan was his sorry, that, that Jacob Schiff was his equal. So it was it was a very tense relationship between the two. Let's uh, pretend that I live in Russia and it's back in the days when Russians were trying to get out and Jews and get, get to the United States. And I don't know, for talking purposes, I live in St. Petersburg. How did I get from St. Petersburg to New York thanks to Albert Ballin? Well, that's a very good question. Given First off, given very strict restrictions on where Jews could live, you could only live as a Jew in if you're basically given a special dispensation to live in St. Petersburg or Moscow. And most Jews, the majority of Russia's 4 million Jews were confined to the so-called Pale of Settlement in the southern part of the empire and to the province of Poland. That was the only place where they could legally live. And they were faced with all sorts of restrictions on what could have businesses they could run. Uh, they could not own land. It was very hard for them to own real property. And most, some had made money uh, and were able to evade this, especially in cities like Odessa. But most Jews were barely scraping by. So if you wanted to get out, and by the 1880s, 1890s, you basically had state-sanctioned anti-Semitism, where whenever, it especially happened on Easter when these pogroms happened, where the 
peasantry and students would leave church and they would basically be said, okay, we've been told, we've been told that you know the Jews are Christ killers. Let's go out and kill some Jews. Let's go beat some up. And the police would stand by and watch. Uh, the most infamous pogrom was in Kishinev in 1903. And uh, yeah, people, the police would stand by, women would be raped, people would be killed, businesses burned, houses looted. And the czarist government said, that's totally fine. Russia, we don't treat Jews badly. It was a total lie. It was a way of sort of seeing, of sort of allowing the populace to blow off steam, quote unquote. And things in Russia were very tumultuous politically. Uh, and the Cossacks would, who were basically the czar's private cavalry would come and rape and pillage and uh, with their sabers on their horses. And also young boys as young as nine years old were conscripted to the army and taken away. So if you wanted to get out, you had to sell everything you owned, uh, whether it was your business, you have to sell your furniture, anything you couldn't carry. You would buy a steamship ticket, often from an agent in your small town or in a medium-sized city. That would also include railroad a railroad ticket. You'd show up, you'd take a train, somehow get to the Russian-German border. And then you'd often have to wait in a migrant camp for weeks to get through. The Hamburg-America line and its competitor, the North German Lloyd, basically were given a contract by the German government to take over the border control stations and run them and allow people to go through if they had a steamship ticket. If they didn't, often aid organizations such as the German, Jew German Jewish Aid Society would help subsidize people to get tickets. But they weren't allowed to settle in Germany. They had to get on these sealed trains after being inspected for uh, all sorts of diseases and other reasons they would get turned away at Ellis Island. They'd be put on these sealed trains taken to um, a station outside of Berlin called Ruhrleben, where they'd be inspected again, put back on the trains, and then they end up in either Bremen or Hamburg. Sometimes they'd end up in Antwerp, Belgium, according to how the steamship lines would divvy them up. And then they'd wait for up to two weeks in an immigrant holding village, where they'd be again checked for diseases, and then they would be put on their ships. So it was a long, it was, this is a four to 5,000 mile long journey by land and sea, very harrowing. And there was a, supposedly was said by many Jewish immigrants who left their small towns, they'd be told by people, may God take care of you and beware of our balance baths where they'd be, where they'd be uh, disinfected. So they would ride in, all of them ride in steerage? Well, not all of them. Most travel in steerage, or if they had a bit more money, third class, where they would have private cabins for families. There were instances where immigrants would save up enough money to travel second class, which was actually a, seen as a loophole because when they arrived in New York City, only third class and steerage passengers would have would be taken to Ellis Island by ferry from the ships and then go through that terrifying and much feared inspection process. If you're traveling second class, or if you really had a lot of money, you could travel first class, you would be inspected on board and usually it was much more perfunctory. So that was a sort of way of trying to get around it as well. But most could not afford to travel second class and would go third class or steerage. So when they were taken off the ship and then taken to Ellis Island, what happened to them there and what where, where did they go from there? Uh, so, sorry, the internet uh, crap. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, cut out for a minute. Sorry. Now, my uh, question was: Once they got to Ellis Island, what happened to them next? Yes. Yeah, so after going through the 
the terrifying uh, inspection process. Uh, and only 2% of all immigrants are actually turned away from Ellis Island between 1881 and 1914. Some would get on trains in Hoboken and travel to other cities such as Chicago and uh, San Francisco or whatnot. But most of them settled in New York. And for the Jewish immigrants, that meant settling on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where they would settle, uh, they would somehow find an apartment at one of these uh, five-story tenements where, which had apartments of only three rooms. You'd often have multiple families living in these spaces. They would often set up uh, workshops there, especially sewing. The needle trade was a very Jewish-dominated business, and they would do piecework for uh, clothing companies, which would then get sent on to be finished uh, and then put in displays at Macy's or Bloomingdale's. It was something the whole family would do, and it was awful work. But what really made the difference of whether a Jewish family on the lower middle, on the Lower East Side made it within 10 to 15 years into the working or middle class was whether or not dad died. If dad survived, there was a very good chance the family would make it out of the Lower East Side within a generation or two. If dad died of disease in the tenements, of tuberculosis or cholera, then the family would be there was no welfare system at the time, and they'd have to fall back on Jewish charity organizations to help feed them and get them going. And that was a source of tremendous trauma for these families, the poverty and if one of the parents died. You might be interested as a side note that the this network you're talking on right now, uh, the original money came from Jews from Germany and Russia, they became Americans, one of the original checks came from a man that had to climb over the French Alps in order to get here. Uh, and I don't think I talked ever much with him. They're all deceased now. I don't think I ever talked with him about it, but I always was interested in why is it they were so uh, civic-oriented, civic-interested, like the people you're writing about here? Where does that come from? Uh, the, 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 uh, just to uh, reiterate, so the, uh, the charity from German Jews, where did that come from? Uh, it, it wasn't charity. It was just an individual who had a, you know, ran a business and wrote the check. Uh, I mean, this is a nonprofit network, but it in the original mm -hmm. money that came in, the first three checks came from uh, Jews, and mm -hmm. I, and and they were they were quite uh, positive about doing this kind of thing. I think a lot of you know, like Jacob Schiff, and there was this was a sort of small crowd of interrelated German Jewish families who were very charitable. They deeply believed. In America, I think they really felt that uh, this was a place where a lot of them, a lot of the German Jews who came a generation or two before the Russian Jews, a lot of them had started off as peddlers, uh, as clothing manufacturers. It started off very poor. And by the 1880s, 1890s, a lot of them had done very well. And they felt like Jacob Schiff, that this is this country is something that should be supported and free and uh, research and inquiry. Uh, from starting in the 1880s, a lot of German Jews started sending their kids to Harvard, which compared to other uh, Ivy League schools at the time was relatively tolerant towards uh, Jews. President Charles William Eliot uh, was perfectly fine letting in large numbers of Jews and was especially partial to the sons of uh, wealthy German Jews. They gave generously to institutions such as the Fogg Museum of Art 
They helped start the art conservation program there. Felix Varberg, who was Jacob Schiff's son-in-law, was extremely philanthropic to Harvard and to these Jewish charities. So I think there was a tremendous sense of civic hope and engagement with the German Jews, of faith in America. But there was, wasn't there a Harvard president that was not uh, very fond of Jews? Did you write yes, that? So af yes, after 1924, uh, 1924, 100 years ago, is actually 100 years ago this year is actually a watershed year for anti-Semitism and for um, immigration. In 1924, uh, Congress passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which basically cut off immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, especially targeted towards Jews. This was also the time that President Abbott Lawrence Lowell, who succeeded Charles William Eliot in 1909, I believe, uh, he became increasingly concerned that Harvard's student body was becoming increasingly Jewish. By uh, the early 1920s, Harvard, which before had been a very upper-class New England prep school place, was, had a student body that was over 20% Jewish, not just the sons of wealthy German Jews like Felix Warburg, but also an increasing number of Jews from the Lower East Side and from poorer parts of Boston, Jews who had done very well on the standard on the on the on tests had gone to uh, elite public schools such as Boston Latin. And Abbott Lawrence Lowell said this is going to he, he said this is going to in a sort of contradiction, he said, the more Jews we have here, the greater the anti-Semitic feeling within the student body. And he basically tried to institute a quota of 10 percent. On, on Jewish students. He felt that they were overrepresented. He felt that they were outperforming people on, on, on the standardized tests. Um, and the faculty said, no, this is wrong. Absolutely not. But Abbott Lawrence Lowell found ways to get around it. And by 1930, Harvard was only 10% Jewish. But Abbott Lawrence Lowell was, uh, Walter Lippmann uh, said some very mean things about Abbott Lawrence Lowell, which were deserved. Uh, Abbott Lawrence Lowell represented this upper class anti-Semite. He was part of something called the Immigration Restriction League founded in the 1890s by a bunch of academics and high society leaders in Boston and uh, Philadelphia, New York, that worried out loud that people from Southern and Eastern Europe were going to quote unquote pollute the gene pool of the United States. Uh, this was scientific racism that was based in stuff that was coming out of Germany and France and adopted by people in this country. And it was an elite movement. It started off as kind of as an upper class fringe thing. But by the 1910s, and especially the 1920s, it had been mainstreamed uh, by skillful use of the media and, and in academia. And so Lawrence, Abbott Lawrence Lowell was part of this movement. As you said earlier, you have a Japanese father and a mother who is Jewish. And the reason I mention this is because as you look, even at Harvard today, people are getting upset with too many Asians in these schools. Uh, what, what's your view of that when you watch this happen? Well, I think it's a similar argument. We have a lot of parallels right now. What is the role of standardized tests? And by the 1910s, 1920s, uh, Jews who were often from the Lower East Side or, uh, who are, or, who's, who, or had risen to the middle class, they were doing very well in standardized tests and uh, were outperforming the old 
Protestant elite uh, on on these tests, uh, who and a lot of the the old Protestant upper class were attending these uh, very expensive boarding schools that were supposedly preparing them for uh, the uh, for the Ivy League. So there's that feeling of competition, and I think we're seeing something similar now with Asians, quote unquote, being overrepresented and doing well on these tests. I think we're we're seeing very odd reflections. I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But it's interesting it's happening, this sort of thing is happening almost 100 years or almost exactly 100 years after these debates took place. I mean, Abbott, Lawrence Lowell and other Ivy League presidents in the 1910s, 1920s be, be got, got worried about these standardized tests saying, well, they're squeezing out our traditional donor base. And that's when they began asking for things such as character references and what was your you know, family's name before it was changed, stuff like that. Uh, my my great uncle, uh, his last name was Brooks and it was probably changed from Berkowitz, but he graduated from the Harvard class of 1940, same class as JFK. They might've known each other. They were both on the intramural swimming team, but uh, yeah, he was one of only a, a few Jews let in after these restrictions. And it's sort of weird to think we're not that far removed from it. Where did but, you get your education? Um, I was educated at Harvard. I graduated in 2001, and I got my master's in historic preservation from the University of Pennsylvania. Just as an aside, have you run into any prejudice in your life with a Uji Fusa last name and a Jewish mother? Uh, not, nothing too overt at this point. I, I, I think that... Um, uh, uh, I mean, I, I I was called a few things as a small kid, but I when by the time I got to college, I did not ex experience anything. But I will say that when I was born in 1979, there weren't that many uh, Asian Caucasian marriages, and now there are lots of kids who are half Asian. It's become a lot more common. Another name that's in your book. Uh, that uh, play, played a role both in the Versailles Treaty and also in immigration is Henry Cabot Lodge. Who was he and what impact did he have on immigration? Well, Henry Cabot Lodge was kind of the political mouthpiece of the Immigration Restriction League. He was a contradiction in that he, he was a long-serving congressman and then senator from Massachusetts. He came from the Boston Brahmin upper class. He got a PhD and a law... No, I think he did get a, a PhD and perhaps a law degree. I need to check on that, as well as his undergraduate from Harvard. He was a protege of the great historian Henry Adams. And Henry Cabot Lodge had a particular interest in the intersection of German and English history and culture. He believed that American democracy actually er sort of arose from, from German tribes. Uh, I don't think he ever really gave Greece credit for that. But... By the 1890s, he became increasingly afraid of Easter, of Southern and Eastern European Jews. Like a lot of Bostonians who lived on Beacon Hill near Lewisburg Square, they looked on the other side of the square on the North Slope and saw all these immigrants and were like, who are these people? This is really scary. And I think he was a very, he was a very confident, outwardly and assured man, but I think he was also a very scared man. Uh, one fellow politician in, on Congress called him thin soil, very highly cultivated. Uh, another uh, person in Congress said that he had, he was the worst stump speaker in Congress. He had a voice like a ripping bedsheet. But he was ve a very smooth political operator. 
He also ironically was a very big advocate of civil rights for African-Americans, but he was terrified of these immigrants. So he basically pushed on Congress on Capitol Hill a series of restriction bills that tried to do literacy tests, that tried to uh, ban people based on whether or not they might be anarchists. But it wasn't until the 1910s or so when popular feeling began catching up with the Immigration Restriction League's literature that he began pushing for quotas uh, uh, for uh, people coming from places like Poland and Russia and Italy and Greece. And by 1924, that was successful. That was around the time he died. So it was a, it was he was something he was very he was very dogged about this. And he he and many of the IRL group brought in bought into scientific racism produced by people in Europe such as Gobineau and spread by people like Henry Fairfield Osborne at the American at the at the uh, Museum of Natural History. Uh, the author Daniel Okrent, who I owe a, a debt of gratitude for for his work and the Garden Gate, really goes into in depth the scientific racism that was popular among this crowd of people. He also gave you a nice endorsement on the back of your book, Mr. Oakland. He did. That was very kind of him. And I got to meet him personally. And he's a the sort of historian I really look up to. Go back to the earlier story. We're talking about coming over, Jews coming over in steerage. Two and a half million for during the 30 years you write about. Is there... Of the three men you're talking about, was there one of them is more responsible than others for physically getting him here to the United States? I think Albert Ballum was the man who really defied the odds to make this transportation system happen. Jacob Schiff did funnel a lot of money through his charities to uh, aid organizations which helped subsidize the steamship tickets. But it was Albert Ballum who really was the person who helped build larger ships to carry more steerage. He made a deal with the German government to basically take over the border control stations and made it a business. Uh, before that, people just snuck across the border and ended up in refugee camps and Germany didn't want them. There were many cases in the 1880s where the Prussian government would forcibly deport uh, uh, Russians, mostly Jews who are living in Germany illegally. But Albert Ballin made it possible for these Jews to get to the sea and get on these ships. I mean, Albert Ballin, we owe a lot of things to him. And not only did he bring over, help bring over, I think it's estimated that maybe a million and a half Jews came over in um, in Hamburg America Line ships. Or, sorry, I take that back. Between 750,000 and 1.2 million probably traveled on Hamburg America Line ships. Uh, many other shipping lines uh, carried immigrants, but Hophog was probably the most favored. He also invented such things as the modern cruise. He built the first purpose-built ships for cruising. He made the first class experience on ships a destination itself. He did a contract with the Ritz-Carlton company to run specialty restaurants in first class where you paid extra for that. He hired the architect of the Ritz Hotel in London and Paris to design the interiors of the first class. He loved the good life, um, very sensitive to that sort of thing. But Albert Ballin also said, if immigration was cut off and I didn't have steerage, the Hamburg America line, which today is known as Hop Hog Lloyd, you can see it on the containers, we'd be out of business in a week. You did two other books, Barons of the Sea and A Man and His Ship. Do you cruise a lot yourself? Uh, no, it's a, it's a bit hard to do with uh, young children, but in a 
2013 and 2015, uh, I was a speaker on uh, ships for seaborne cruise lines. And but I will say that we are taking an Alaska cruise uh, this summer on a Holland America ship, which was Holland America is one of the companies that JP Morgan's combine got its hands on, bought a majority stake in. Uh, it's now owned by Carnival Cruise Lines. But um, yeah, don't do a whole lot of cruising regularly. But that's something we're looking forward to uh, this this summer. I want to ask you about three ships. Uh, one of them is in your book. Well, they're actually all mentioned in your book. One in particular has a direct connection to what we're talking about here, and that is the MS St. Louis. What is that story from World War II, May of 1939? So the Hamburger America line was able to get off its feet or get back on its feet after World War I. Most of its ships, it's 175 ships, were taken away as war reparations. Albert Ballin died in 1918. It's a debate of whether or not he died at his own hand, but he knew his company was ruined and Germany was ruined. But the company rebuilt its fleet with smaller vessels, including the motor ship MV St. Louis. The St. Louis, I believe, was built in the late 1920s as a combination cruise ship and transatlantic liner. In 1939, she was 900 or so German Jewish passengers booked a voyage on her from Hamburg to Havana, Cuba. And this was seen as an escape. America still had its restrictions from 1924 that prevented large numbers of, of Central and Eastern European people, especially Jews, from leaving the country. So Havana was seen as a, uh, as a, as a legitimate destination. But when the ship arrived, in Havana, the government decided they changed their mind and they blocked the entry of these people to Havana. The captain of the ship, Gustav Schroeder, even though the ship flew the Nazi flag, he made it a very big point of his to treat these passengers with respect and courtesy like any other paying passenger. And he radioed the State Department in America saying, we have 900 plus people on board, including women and children, I request permission to dock in New York and unload these people. And the State Department said no. FDR's reasoning was that the anti-immigration feeling was just too strong. So Captain Schroeder turned the ship around and headed back not to Hamburg, but to Antwerp, where they unloaded the passengers. And these people were divvied up among various European nations in a deal brokered by the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Of those 900 or so people, um, 200 plus died in the Holocaust. Uh, those that survived, most of them were in England. But it was a voyage that was made in a movie called The The, uh, the, the Voyage of the Damned. And uh, the irony was that this ship, uh, after the Nazis took over in 1933, the German government, the Hamburg America Line, which was uh, you know, had not only Albert Ballin as its a long time head, but after he died in 1918, you had people like Max Vorberg, his good friend and banker who were on the board of directors. They were all fired. The company was quote unquote Aryanized. And all vestiges or all memories of Albert Ballin's contribution to the company were erased. But Captain Schroeder uh, was someone who made a point of treating these people well. And he never forgot, as a young sailor in 1902, he was a sailor aboard a ship called the SS Deutschland. Albert Ballin visited his ships all the time to make sure that they were in, they were 
perfect in operating order. The service was great. And Captain Schroeder, as a young sailor, never forgot the great kindness that Albert Ballin showed him. And I think that might have had an influence on how he treated his Jewish passengers on that infamous voyage. And he was eventually honored by Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations for his humanitarian work on as captain of that ship. You made a side comment about Al- Albert Ballin's death. Uh, what what can you more can you tell us about what are the chances that he committed suicide? Um, it's it's up for debate whether or not he he was so depressed and so broken as the war was drawing to an end in 19 November of 1918 there was a full-fledged revolution that broke out in Germany uh, especially in Hamburg basically people saying this war has to end and when he was in his office uh, working at Hapag what had happened he was physically threatened the offices were looted and ransacked he was spared but went back to his house and where he was greeted by his wife who said that their house had also been ransacked and he knew the war was over. Four million soldiers on the German side had died. Hundreds of thousands of civilians had died of starvation. He was so just broken by what happened. He had worked for so many years before the war to stop it. He felt that he was a pacifist at heart. He also knew that a, uh, a war, especially with Russia, would destroy his business. So he did take a dose of sleeping pills that day, November 8th. And it is unclear whether he took an overdose or whether he was so broken that that pushed him over the edge. But he died the next day. And the same day that Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated. So it was said by at his funeral and by his daughter that thank goodness father did not get to live through this terrible time. Where was he living? Germany surrender. Where was he living when he died? Uh, he was living in Hamburg. He was living in his the, uh, uh, a beautiful house that he had built for his family called the Villa Bala, um in the Rotterdam district of Hamburg. The other two ships, first, uh, and these are are not news stories, but uh, get your perspective on it. One of them is in the 1912 Titanic going down. What do you know about that story? So the Titanic was the second of three large superliners built by the White Star Line under J.P. Morgan's ownership. And they were meant to surpass the German ships uh, that were grander or faster than anything the British had built. And this was a gamble on the part of the White Star Line. Uh, Albert Ballin followed the construction of these ships very closely from Hamburg. He himself was building three ships that were even larger than the Titanic and her sisters. And the Titanic, when she set sail in April 1912, it actually was not a huge news event. She was only the second ship of the cl- she was the second ship of the class. The her sister ship Olympic, which is a teeny bit smaller, had already garnered the headlines for being the grandest and most luxurious ship in the world. And the Titanic could only carry a thousand in third class, which compared to the 2,500 that the German ships carry was not a huge number. And when she set sail, she had a large number of, obviously, the Gentile wealthy, including John Jacob Astor IV uh, and uh, George D. Widener of Philadelphia and his family. But she also carried a few of the German Jewish elite, including Isidore and Ida Strauss. Isidore was a former congressman, uh, part owner of Macy's department store. But there were also probably about, arguably, it's the numbers are unclear, 
but there are probably around 50 Jews traveling in third class on the ship. And when the ship struck the iceberg on the late night of April 14th, 1912, there's a famous story where Isidore and Ida Strauss are sitting or basically standing by one of the lifeboats and an officer tells Mr. Strauss, you know, you're, in your, you're an old man, uh, you're a former congressman, why don't you step into a boat? It shouldn't be a big deal. And he said, no, I will not leave before the other younger men. And while there's still children on board, then his wife, Ida, said, I'm not leaving without him. Uh, we've living, been living together for many years where you go, I go. And so they died together. And this disaster, which killed 1,500 of the 22 people on board, I mean, the ship was only half full. If she had been fully booked at 3,500, it would have been a, an even worse catastrophe. The ship only had 20 lifeboats. Uh, this catastrophe was a touchstone or a, a unifying event for the Jewish community of America. The Strausses became martyrs as a Jewish couple that despite their wealth stuck together and died together. And there were Yiddish songs written about this. I think that's how my grandmother passed along the story to me because even though she was born four years after the Titanic, it was a something that her parents probably told her about as a model for what a good Jewish marriage should be. And the disaster devastated J.P. Morgan's company, rich and poor alike, basically boycotted White Star Liners, saying, we're not going on these ships, they're not safe. And they flocked to the Hamburg America line. The last ship I want to ask you about is the Lusitania in 1915 went down. So the Lusitania was a ship that was owned by the Kennard Line, which was another ship, shipping company that J.P. Morgan couldn't get his hands on. Uh, the British government gave it a subsidy and to build uh, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, her sister, in 1907. And uh, the Lusitania was, in 1915, the only large ocean liner still left in regular service. And she was departed in, on May 1st, 1915, from New York bound for Liverpool. So she was not carrying any immigrants on board. She was basically kind of operating as sort of a public service by the Kennard Line. And because of wartime shortages, she was only going at two-thirds speed. Uh, she was actually a very fast ship. She could go 26 knots. And she was torpedoed only hours away from her final destination of Liverpool. And this very large ship sank in only 20 minutes, killing 1,200 of the 2,000 people on board. This event turned American public opinion against Germany and its allies and more on the side of Great Britain. Uh, never mind that the Lusitania was carrying uh, many, many cases of small arms ammunition for the uh, British war effort. But uh, before, the war, before this happened, uh, Americans were sort of just wanted to remain neutral, but this definitely tipped American public opinion against Germany. Jacob Schiff, uh, although a very proud American, also felt very loyal to his fatherland, to Germany. He didn't see Germany as a problem. The country that he saw as a problem was Russia. And he said, I cannot support an alliance of America with Great Britain, France, and Russia. Russia is the great Satan of the Jewish people. And he had a very hard time after this disaster disavowing Germany, as did a lot of German Jews. But this disaster really also spiked tremendous anti-German feeling, but also 
tremendous anti-immigration, anti-Semitic feeling, because in the a lot of the American public's mind, Jews in Germany, especially German bankers, were seen as uh, seen as the enemy. So this really was a seminal event in immigration and in America's relationship to Germany, because the Kaiser was called a murderer, and 120 plus Americans died in the disaster. How often since your book has been out has someone said to you, I didn't know that story, and they were, their family would have been a part of it all? It's interesting. I'm talking, I think I'm talking about, law. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm talking about your whole book and the story of the Jews being brought over in steerage. I think that in America we have this image of, oh, people arrived and they saw the Statue of Liberty and <laughs> we came here and going through Alessandro was amazing. But a lot of people, my great-grandparents and people's grandparents of another generation, their their the their immigrant forebears sort of suppressed these memories it was so painful, so awful. Whether it was the persecution in Russia or that voyage, they didn't talk about it. They wanted to look forward. And yeah, I mean, we've seen it in that, you know, that wonderful cartoon and American Tale, which basically brings that to life. But this is a story that I think a lot of families have suppressed because of that trauma. Uh, one famous child of immigrants, Lauren Bacall, uh, who became one of the great beauties and actresses of her time. She said her grandparents came to this country along with her mother, who was a baby, uh, on the Hamburg America Line ship, the Deutschland. And she said that her grandparents, whenever they'd used the word push cart to describe her family's business, it was uttered in whispers, like this horrid thing. And I think that's something that a lot of American Jews by the third or fourth generation have forgotten. But I think that this is something that we need to rediscover, that this was something going back to Russia was not an option. It was not an option. If you got turned away, you go back to persecution and death. It was a life or death decision. Stephen Ujifusa has been our guest. His book is called The Last Ships from Hamburg. Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you so much, Brian. appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.